0: You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm joined by David Nolan, lead developer of ClojureScript and a software engineer at vouch.io. We start off talking about what people mean by REPL-driven development, and then transition to a discussion of fundamental differences between older dynamic languages like Smalltalk and modern scripting languages like Python. This leads to a discussion of the different rituals that emerge in different programming cultures, trade-offs between generic programming and simpler solutions, and lessons learned over our careers as functional programmers. Software Inscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Inc. No Red ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at no red ink dot com slash jobs. And now, programming rituals. All right, David. <laughs> really nice to talk to you again. Yeah, hello. It's been a while. Okay, so I wanted to start by asking you about your experiences with REPL-driven development because there was a post that I saw recently uh, sort of talking about how like, this is really fundamentally different in a language like Clojure, for example, which you obviously have a lot of experience with, versus something like a Python or a JavaScript, which is not really designed in the same way. So kind of curious, like what are your thoughts on REPL-driven development as a term?
1: Well, going back a little bit, I mean, I think the thing that people always liked about these quote unquote script languages like, right, is that they often provided a REPL, meaning that like if you're learning and you're like, I just want to try a snippet, you know, so a lot of programming languages realized that as a sort of like ease of use thing, providing a REPL allows people to understand the idioms of the language via small little examples. So it's, it's a really nice interactive model and that's been known for a very, very long time. Right. And that's the opposite. Historically, I would say, at least that's my impression is that you had languages that were compiled. And so you have to wait, you sit there and you have to wait, you write a program, you compile it and then you run it. And then it's like, not very interactive if your compiler is super fast, maybe it's slightly interactive, but it's still not really as interactive. So I think, in especially in the 90s, I feel like, you saw a lot of scripting languages take off because for certain tasks, you don't need like an industrial language, you just need some sort of glue and you want something that's easy to to sort of learn and pick up. I feel like Perl in the 90s is like probably the biggest example of this, yeah. Exactly, Perl. Perl got so big and it's, you know, there's still places that use Perl, I'm sure. You know, it's like, it's definitely true. Perl became really successful for having this property. On the coattails of that, you saw this like explosion of things like, you know, PHP, Ruby, Python. I mean, these all, all these things to me came in the wake of Perl. People realized for certain types of tasks, this is better. But I think was lost is that, you know, it wasn't always this sort of like these quote unquote scripting language. I want to do something really quick. I mean, if you go back to things like Smalltalk, and Smalltalk, of course, was influenced by Lisp. There was definitely this interest in like very sort of, quote unquote, serious programming, but supporting the interactive programming model. The big difference, though, if you've never tried Smalltalk or Lisp, is that in those systems, it's not a REPL in the sense that you just type expressions into a thing. Smalltalk, of course, was even more extreme in that you know, you could modify the running virtual machine. You could load code at any time. You could alter the running program. So it wasn't even really a REPL in any text editor. You could evaluate code, and it would change the system. From what I understand, actually, that had a huge impact on the Lisp community, and you saw that with like Common Lisp. Yeah, exactly. The types of environments people were making with Common Lisp were definitely informed by the approaches that people from small talk, I mean, the idea that it's a programming environment. So to me, a REPL, of course, it doesn't need to be the full small talk thing, but a REPL to me is not a little thing to like type in expressions, but (laughs) it's, it's a hook into a running program, right? It's, it's a way to connect to a program that's actually running and to examine and alter its behavior. It's useful as the debugging thing. I mean, it's people, people, I think, confuse this. People are used to using sort of these simpler repls for debugging. But really, we do that. But a lot of times, we're just actually doing development. We're just doing full-blown development repl.
0: I, I really like that you brought up small talk and scripting, because I think these two have some things in common. And like today, it's really common to lump all of dynamically typed languages under one umbrella. But I think there was this useful distinction that's sort of been lost between scripting and dynamism. And sure some languages like are both or can be used for both. But like scripting it seems like the essential characteristic is like what you said is not waiting for a compiler, it's something really fast and like quick and you know just dirty just get the job done. And that's sort of like what the emphasis is for like scripting languages. But then there's also languages where dynamism in the sense of being able to change the running program really easily is like a huge virtue and like something that's like an explicit goal like small talk like alan Kay's talks are all about like biological systems and like needing to be able to an extreme oversimplification would be upgrade on the fly, but that's like the tip of the iceberg of what he's talking about in terms of like, you know, you need to be able to evolve your system as it's running without taking it down, without restarting, without recompiling any of that stuff. Just like everything's got to be extensible and modifiable and changeable and evolvable on the fly. The word dynamism seems like a good way to capture that. And not all scripting languages have that. In fact, most scripting languages don't have that. They're not, that's not even a goal, it's a non goal. And what they have in common, like scripting languages and like really dynamic languages for making like running systems is that they have like, you know, runtime type checking and stuff like that. But that's almost like a superficial <laughs> commonality to me.
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I definitely think that distinction has been lost. I mean, I mean, part of the issue is that people are only familiar with, I would say, dynamic. I mean, most people when they say dynamic programming language these days, I mean, they're talking about JavaScript, right? Maybe they're talking <laughs> about Ruby. Maybe they're talking about yeah, Python. Python, I mean, right? People, those one of those yeah, three, they, probably. They don't. So, so, so it's been lost. It's definitely been lost. How powerful the older dynamic languages were. I mean, there's really no comparison. One could argue the modern aff- affordances in dynamically typed languages, modern is much better. Like you can get things done faster. But in terms of like. What was the philosophy? I definitely think a lot of things are lost. Even closure doesn't really go the whole way, right? It's not like closure is trying to be like small talk or like
0: a list machine. It's a non-goal. So what are some differences there? I actually don't know that. Like some differences between... Like what closure is, and like and like a small talk. I actually don't. I'm just ignorant of <laughs> of like what the differences are there.
1: Well, it's I mean a small talk is a full programming environment, right? So you have oh, like sure. a ma- you have like a massive class library. So you know this idea, like you know, it's so funny. It's like everybody talks about dependencies, but like a small talk image, it comes with everything. I mean, it literally comes with everything. Like what what anything you could possibly do is already in the image, and adding stuff is easy. <laughs> Including the editor. <laughs> if you think about it, um. Java definitely took this idea of like Smalltalk is like a very large standard library, GUI components, data structures, concurrency primitives. I mean, it's just like, you know, I mean, that's one of the big cells about Java is that actually a very large amount of things are in the standard library, right? You know, in Smalltalk, you just had a lot of functionality and it's a system, not a programming language, right? So I would say that one thing that was lost and is still to a degree lost is that List machines and small talk environments were programming environments. The programming language was only one part of some bigger thing. There were many things around the language to make it useful and usable. But programming languages, I think now, because, you know, we've more or less adopted Unix as like a thing. I mean, programming languages are like a way to glue together Unix things, right? So... It can never really be a whole system because the whole system is outside of the programming language.
0: Yeah, the scope of programming languages has definitely gotten smaller since. I mean, if you if you start with a small talk as a starting point, they they seem to have gotten a lot smaller today compared to that. Even though, like something that's that's weird to me is that even though it's normal to have in every programming language, to have some sort of way to do like unit tests, some sort of way to have like package management. There are these things that like, if you look at every programming language where the scope is, this is just a way to turn some text files into running code, which is almost all of them. If that's the scope, you still end up with like 100% of the time, certain things in the like third party ecosystem around that of, of like tooling. And so it's weird to me that most languages that are created today, like if somebody's, if I read about a language on like Hacker News or something like that, the scope is still, well, I'm just going to have the language do this and then it's going to be up to the ecosystem to do those things. Go being like a notable exception. Rust kind of is an exception to this. So like, in fact, like Cargo basically is what everybody uses Rust with, but still like Rust-C is a separate compiler. So like, it's kind of weird to me that, it's not more commonplace to say like, well, the ecosystem is going to end up with a testing thing. Why don't we think about that as in scope with the whole language development? Like that's something we're doing with Rock, but like I don't see it done very often. Even though like that, there's kind of this strong consensus about like these are things that should exist. I'm not saying everybody should go all the way all, as far as Smalltalk did, but I wonder why they don't go further than they do. I work on Script and you're working in a programming language, and yep. you know, I've
1: been, <laughs> I've been I've been doing it for about. 11 years, and one day you'll be doing it for 11 years. Honestly, it's just time, right? To me, it's like, you know, usually with programming language maintainers, there's only a finite amount of time, and you have to pick your battles, because even with multiple people working on the thing, there's simply not enough time to do everything. I mean, I think one thing that's super interesting about things like small talk, I think you can go to Sweet Squeak, Squeak, Landers, whatever it's called, I forget, small talk dog, whatever. But when you download, I believe that when you download like a running small talk system, I believe that there are classes that may be from the 70s or code that's from the 80s, early 80s, that's still running in an image today, right? I mean, it's true. I mean, stuff like that, of course, is true for like, I'm sure there's places in any Unix based system where there's old programs that are like, you know, it's, it's it's very similar. The point here is that like, we're talking like 30, 40 years of effort, And many, many, many people, like people come and go, people come and go. And the thing is compelling enough for for that thing to go on for a very long time. Problem is, if you want your language to be popular and you want to like get traction on Reddit or Hacker News, you have to like show people that it's going to solve something for them today, right? It's going to solve something for them in six months. But the thing is, from a maintainer's perspective, what can you accomplish in six months,
0: right? That's a good point. Yeah, there's definitely a trade off there. I mean, there's a reason that we tend to vilify scope creep in like commercial product development, which is that, yeah, I mean, it makes everything take a lot longer to ship and it increases the complexity and yada yada. Maybe there's an element of like selection there where like languages that try to have too much in scope, maybe they just take forever to ship and then they don't take off because they took so long to ship. That's a possibility too. I was trying to think of like what are modern examples of languages that really take the sort of small talk as like this is a whole environment and actually like when you're writing code, it's not just like the language is going to compile it and turn it into a thing, but rather like there's a sense of like this is all happening in real time at runtime and what you're editing is in part runtime pretty directly. The closest thing I can think of that's not like hey, we're coming out with a small talk dialect or something like that is dark in the sense that it's like, it's a whole editor. It's scoped to be like, you're working on your production system and everything's done via feature flags. And then you can just flip the feature flag on to have it like be enabled. But like right when you're editing, it's like shipping it, you know, straight to your production servers, just hidden behind a flag. But other than that, I can't really think of any examples that are even like spiritually similar to what small talk is sort of going for.
1: Yeah. Again, I, I think it's just too much effort and too much time. I mean, I think it's just a time thing, right? Time and money. The other thing is that like, you know, if you think about small talk, small talk was before it went commercial, I think it was Alan Kay's team was working on it for about a decade, right? And Xerox, Xerox Park was footing that bill. There was at least seven or 10 people, if not more. So, I mean, who's going to pay for seven to 10 people to work on something
0: for 10 years? And <laughs> it's not clear that it's going to make any money. Very true. I mean, Alan Kay gave a talk about like funding development projects like Park. It was to an audience of, I guess, primarily like people involved in like really big businesses. But he was basically making the case that like, this is a good idea and more companies should do it. And that's how we get like really big leaps forward is like give a bunch of smart people a bunch of money and a bunch of time and don't expect them to have, you know, something to show for it next quarter. (laughs) And apparently, I don't know if this is true or not, but he said that xerox ended up making their money back on park just from laser printers even though they came out with a bunch of stuff which if true it's i mean uh, it seems like again like a pretty compelling pitch but i guess this talk was a few years ago and it doesn't seem like a lot of companies
1: <laughs> are buying into that no it's true as far as i know that story is definitely true that they made all their money back just from the invention of the laser printer again because there's not much funding in To be honest, I think most modern computer systems require so many components. Not all those components can be created in your system. You have to use something external. I mean, it's just so common. It's such a common problem, right? You know, I think modern computer programming is basically ruled by pragmatism. I would say it's absolutely 100% ruled by pragmatism. As a programmer, most of your work is driven by business considerations, not research. You're lucky if occasionally you can do a spike on something at a little bit innovative. but I would say most of the work that we're doing is generally not going to be like very seriously innovative. It's just there's some requirements and we have to satisfy those requirements in a reasonable amount of time. That means you have to go find libraries that have already been written. So there's all these pressures to become pragmatic. I don't know that, you know, I don't personally see anything changing that. I mean, on the upside, I think what's cool, and I think this is great for things like, I mean, you, you use Elm, at no Ink, I get to use closure, is that there are technologies that sort of, for varying degrees, embrace the reality of the current situation and allow you to, within the context of the program that you're writing, leverage better semantics or better programming models. So you can't control everything, but the primary part of the software that you're working on, you're able to have this nice, contained world
0: that is different. Somebody was asking me recently about what's your pitch for like why you use like non-mainstream technologies. And I was thinking about how to like sort of concisely answer that. And I think part of my answer, and I'm curious if this fits with your experience with Closure and Closure Script, is that you get a better foundation and like everything that you're writing in that language or, or that novel technology, whatever it might be, the pieces fit together better and you have a nicer experience writing it and you can be more productive and and all these nice things. The downside is that the ecosystem tends to be smaller. Uh, You don't have as much that you can pull off the shelf. And there are some projects where like I've talked to people who it's like most of my job is gluing together off the shelf libraries. Fair enough. I get that. If you're doing that, then of course you want to optimize for ecosystem size. But the types of projects that I've had in my career have been the opposite where libraries are helpful, certainly. But The vast majority of the time that we've spent, and this is including jobs, and including at the beginning of NoRate Inc., when I joined, where we used exclusively mainstream technologies, we still were spending a very small percentage of our time gluing together off-the-shelf libraries. It was mostly writing custom code from scratch. And in that environment, the balance shifts of like what's valuable. The nice foundation becomes the thing that you're spending most of your time working in and not the libraries. On top of which, and this gets back to something you alluded to, which is that Modern languages, it's extremely common for them to have some story around how you can access code in other ecosystems, like outside the language that you're working in. And that's true in Elm, that's true in Clojure. You know, the story might be different, but the the point remains, and this has been true at no Red Ink. like we've certainly done this all the time when needed. It's like, yeah, accessing that library is maybe a little bit more annoying because it's a different paradigm. It's like not written the way that you want it to be. You know, there's a little bit of overhead to the the interaction there. But you still can access those things. It's not even like you're like, oh, we just have this tiny ecosystem and that's all we've got. It's like, well, we have this tiny ecosystem and then we still have access to the much bigger one. It's just like not as ergonomic as we want. <laughs> and that story, like you said, I mean, it's it's pragmatic and it seems to work out really nicely. That's been my experience, but I'm, I'm curious, does that resonate with you? Generally speaking, the things we want to do, yeah. If there's something
1: that we need whether it's like, you know, some crypto library or whatever, of course, they yeah, we're going to look at like, okay, there's a, a Java thing we can use or there's like, there's some HTTP layer we want to build. Why are we going to write that ourselves? If somebody already wrapped something in something that was in Java, they already wrapped it in Clojure. It's got a nice interface. We just use that stuff. Of course. I do agree that most of my work has also been like you write custom code. I mean, you know, we have like three years of, custom code and a lot of it. So most of my work isn't gluing. I mean, gluing is a part of the job. I mean, totally. it's definitely a part of the job. But most of our work is not glue work. It's like actually writing code to make something to make the product that we're building work. And you're you're in you're in a product company and you're building a product. So this requires a lot of custom effort. So there's no turnkey thing. You know, back but maybe to your point, why learn another paradigm? I mean, you know, I, you know I, people ask that question a lot. And I feel like, I mean, I, a lot of it just depends. Like, you know, some people, I guess, could do like object-oriented stuff for like a long time and they're happy with it. And they, they've learned all the things. They, they get good at it. And they're, they've really mastered that paradigm. And it's totally, I mean, you know, it's, like, it's hard to criticize in terms of success. If you want to have a successful career, <laughs> If you're a pretty good object-oriented programmer, that's a pretty good way to like, yeah, g- that's all. <laughs> you're gonna, you're hireable and all this other stuff. You know, I feel like in many ways, people always want to resort to reason, but you know, to me, programming language is also sort of like, you know, there is a sort of taste element to a degree. Like, I got into functional programming because I was like, hey, what's all this stuff about? I heard about functional programming; it seems cool. Let me try it. Let me see how it's different. And, you know, it's like this process of comparing. And then personally, for me, what I've discovered is that like, there are lots of things that I used to do that I don't have to do anymore. Right. There are a lot of assumptions that I had before. I was like, oh, I need to do this abstraction and I need to make these interfaces. I need to make these intermediate classes. And, you know, there's all these sort of like various like rituals. I mean, I'd call them rituals, software rituals. Like the thing that people forget is that a significant amount of what people do in software is not like the truth. It's a ritual that's sort of been adopted within a social programming practice, right? Right. It's like, there's nothing stopping you from writing Java in a purely functional way, right? The people already, there's been so many talks about this. You could do it. But anybody that's in the cult of Java is gonna be like, what are you doing? (laughs) "This This is not what everybody else is doing. And so, you know, you go to a different programming language because you wanna see how it is and what's different. You know, it turns out often, You know, there, of course, there'll be different rituals, a different set of rituals in a different community. Overall, I would say I like, you know, like when I talk to people, it's like, to me, functional programming is simpler. You tend to write simpler programs. You tend to do less boilerplatey things that, like, you know, like when I I, got, like, and when I did object-oriented programming, it's like, you make your model classes, you do your setters and your getters, you just do all this stuff. And it's like, it's like, it feels good. It feels good, but it's (laughs) not, you're not doing anything. You're not doing anything. You're absolutely not doing anything. It's just stuff. It's just this ritual, you know? I got tired of it. And so I found that functional programming, at least with Clojure, I'm sure you have analogs. of like, you know, these big ideas about modularity and organizing your programs and making things extensible. There's all these great ideas for modular programming that you can use in a functional programming context, to solve your problem without doing all the rituals.
0: Yeah, I'm very much reminded of like, and I I don't know why I never connected the dots of these until just now, but the first functional programming that I wrote as opposed to like reading about, it was in CoffeeScript actually, because that's what we were using at work at the time. And I'd learned about this style and I was like, okay, I'm going to basically try to follow the rules and write pure functions and so forth, you know, in CoffeeScript. And something that I really liked about CoffeeScript, and we actually continued this in Rock, is that, there's only one syntax for defining functions. And this sounds like a small thing, but it's basically just like name of function equals lambda. And it's like, that's your primitive. That's the one, prim- It's they're all functions. They're not special. There aren't like classes that like need to have a, a certain thing set up ahead of time. It's like, no, 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 that's just, it's a function. That's it. It's going to have some logic. It. It's going to take some arguments. It's going to return some stuff. That's it. That's the primitive. And there was just, for me, mentally something very freeing about that especially coming from a java background where like yeah i mean i remember thinking at some point how convenient it was in my ide to be able to generate getters and setters because then i didn't have to write them out by hand and we had a policy at the job where i worked that you had to have a getter and a setter for every single piece of data like every single field in in every single class we also had a policy at that job where every single concrete class that you made had to have an interface right the interface name was the more the nicer name to use and then the concrete you had to have a concrete class with the same name as the interface plus the word impl at the end and that was the implementation of that class and all of this was just like and now you know if i were in like elm or rock or even javascript i would just be like and it's an object or it's a record anonymous that's it you know we're not <laughs> don't need to have all of this like backdrop to it and yeah like to your point when i look back and i'm like okay so like we did all that extra work What did it get us? I can't even think of anything that it really got us. Like, there are all these theoreticals, like, oh, now you have these getters and setters. And so, in the future, if you want to like override the implementation and like silently make it, you know, secretly be computed based on another value, you can do that. Or if you want to cache something, you can do that and you won't have to like break the interface and like, you know, break any call sites. I never did that. I never saw anyone do that. It was just we spent all this time engineering it to be able to do that and then we just didn't do it it's like it's like when i hear people talk about orms and like oh is if you have an orm you can switch your backing database really easily i don't know how many people say that and have actually tried to do it i was at a company where we used an orm hibernate and we switched from MySQL to PostgreSQL, and it was a gigantic project. <laughs> so it was like the farthest thing from like just dropping in. So like you said, there are just these rituals that we do, and there's a narrative about like, oh, this will get you these benefits. But if you then go and try and experimentally test to see if you get the benefits, I think a lot, a lot, a lot of these things, they actually don't get you the claimed benefits even though you do all the work up front to theoretically get them in the future.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's like, and in some sense, all these rules are like somebody, some engineer had some bad experience and then they established these rules because they had a bad experience somewhere else. And they've codified these rituals, whether or not they apply in every context or not. But if you think about it, to me, it all boils down to Java is a relatively complicated language with a relatively complicated feature set. It's very powerful. You can do good things and bad things with it. They're trying to create this control around the thing because maybe in the end, objects are a really weird place to start solving problems, right? Because (laughs) if you start with an object, well, well, then you're like, well, what's it gonna be like called? And like, what's in it? And like, you have to ask all these questions which are tangential to the problem, which almost rarely is ever well described. By like objects right it's like you know it's like that's not really going to matter but we impose objects on the specification and then you impose an orm over the db i mean you're just like you know it's like it's just looking through the problem through this lens forcing everything in this problem again it's almost of course there's going to be all this ceremony because you believe something and it's really what it is it's Like believe it's like a belief it's like 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 it's not Something wrong with that, but it's like, there's no evidence that it's good or bad. It's just a thing that you believe, right? That's it. That's why when I tell people functional programming, I say, you should try it because you just believe stuff. Like you should believe stuff. <laughs> I believe something slightly different. I think that a lot of the things that you like about what you do, you could do using my thing. And I bet you'll find out through experience that it's very similar in the end and it requires Again, less ceremony, less imaginary things, right? Like to me, you're like a function. Well, I mean, everybody knows that like a method and a function from a theoretical standpoint is not that different, right? A method and a function from a theoretical standpoint is not that different, right? But I have to go make an object in Java and then I have to make a method and I have to put it in a package and I have to, you know, to do all this stuff. And then copy script, I make a lambda, I assign it to variable. <laughs> Done. I'm done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, number yeah. of, the number of steps is so few steps. And that I think it, people don't put enough value in that. And they think that like, oh, because it's so easy, it must be a toy paradigm. And I would argue, <laughs> no, actually, it is the right place to start solving problems. And you probably can solve your problem directly and with a lot less obfuscation. I mean, to me, that's another big concern. You know, when you read object-oriented code, it's like maybe the actual thing that you're trying to do is really simple, but because of the rituals, you know, the ceremony, it's not so easy to understand that it's actually simple.
0: Yeah, I think it's kind of strange that on the one hand, there's definitely a lot of like justification after the fact. It's like, well, this technology is widely used, therefore it must be really good and like the, generally the right way to do things because the alternative is like unthinkable that like we could be doing something really suboptimal in a lot of cases and maybe have been for years. So there's a lot of justification after the fact of like, oh, well, like you're going to need this. There's a benefit to all this, and if you think you are you can get away without doing it, it's because you're missing something, and it's going to come back and bite you later. But of course, the flip side of that is overengineering. You ain't going to need it. It turns out that there's a very common thread throughout all of programming of, like, we do all of this work for an imagined future benefit, and it never pans out. This happens all the time. And I'm not saying that's, like, Every problem is, you know, fits that description, but it's actually, I mean, it's so common that we have terms for these phenomena. The idea that simultaneously, it must be true that like the most popular ways of doing programming are correct and generally like optimal and like everybody should be doing things that way, not just because of historical momentum, but because these are actually in some deep sense, the right way of doing things is pretty fundamentally at odds with the notion of you ain't going to need it of like of how common it is that we find ourselves accidentally over engineering something so to me if anyone comes to you and says hey there's a much simpler way that you could be doing this you ought to at least have an open mind to that like maybe you say okay what's the catch and and if they say there is no catch then you should say "Mm, okay i want to i want to investigate this further and by all means investigate it further but it definitely seems like the thing that you should have an open mind towards because it's so common in software to accidentally over engineering things. Like if you think about it through that lens, what are the odds that the most popular ways of, of doing software is not over-engineered in some sense? That seems like that would be a incredible coincidence if, like, if we managed to get this many decades into the industry without over engineering things and, and having opportunities to simplify things. That would be like the first software project in history where that turned out to be the case that we, we actually got the simplest thing that works after decades of accumulating cruft, and there was no opportunities to simplify it. Like, of course, there's opportunities to simplify it. That seems like the safer bet, knowing nothing else about the specifics of the languages in question. I totally agree. I mean, it's also something that's like people talk about beginner's mind,
1: you know, like people that start off with programming. You know, sometimes you look at their program, it's like maybe a little bit too naive, but often it's not far off the mark. And so I think, you know, the difference between like somebody who's just starting and somebody's experience, really experienced, is that they know like, yes, it doesn't need to be smarter than this. We're done. And <laughs> you're yeah. like, actually... I think we're going to need to do at least one more step of like indirection or generalization, because there are a couple other cases we need to handle. But I think that's the big thing is that experience allows a software engineer to say, we do or we don't need to be generic. It also goes back to this thing where you're talking about this, like, you know, from the ivory tower, you must write this interface with Impel, and you have to write your getters and setters. (laughs) And, you know, and that to me is about control because like the management, maybe they don't know how much experience everybody has or they can't control it or they don't have a good communication process in the devs. And it's, it's an attempt to like, I don't know, smooth out like these things, but it's so artificial, right? It's so artificial. It's not going to prevent somebody from like these steps. It's trying to fix some sort of sign problem and it will not prevent like big issues. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm reminded of something that I've encountered outside of object-oriented programming because we're talking mostly about like OO and Java and like a lot of the stuff we're talking about, Java definitely applies to C++ as well and, you know, similar languages. But like this is even within functional programming, I think this question of like how and when to be general definitely comes up. And I see this as like speaking of cultural things as a big difference between like Elm and Haskell. In Haskell, it's culturally very strongly encouraged to be as general as possible, especially with your types. And also talking about ceremony, like there's also a very strong cultural thing to say, like I'm going to define that this new type of mine has a monad instance and a functor instance and a traversable and this long list of things under the assumption that people are going to want them in the future. And granted, I will say that in my experience, those instances get a lot more used in Haskell. Like the, the ratio of time spent satisfying those type classes to how much those often actually get used in practice is much higher for Haskell than it was based on my memory of Java in terms of like I spent a lot of time in Java writing stuff that never got used and in Haskell that's a lot lower the percentage is a lot lower but still in comparison to something like Elm it's higher like there's definitely more time spent implementing things or or providing things just in case someone needs it in the future and then sometimes you know, they never actually use it. There's also an element of, and and this is something that's become sort of a pet peeve of mine over time, which is this urge as, and I think it's just like a human urge to classify things. And when I say class, I don't, I don't literally mean class in the sense of like an OO class, what I mean, or, or even a type class. What I mean is just like to put things in buckets and be like, this is a that. And like, I want to say that and I want to write it down. And now I wrote it down and that's great because now I said it and that's good. It's like, well, okay, but what do we do with that information? Like, you classified that this thing is one of these. Now, what? What benefit does that bring to the program? It's like, well, I said what it is, and so now I know, and I label, I put a label on it, and that's great. And now it's it's labeled, and that feels good. You know, <laughs> to your earlier point, it's like, you know, feels good when you're doing it. But if you retrospect and be like, how much time did you spend labeling things, and how much value did you get out of having those labels on those things? It's low. It's very. it's, it's a lot of time, and it's not a lot of value in my experience.
1: I think we're on the same page. Like I'm not, I don't really believe in like, I would call it generic programming, right? There's this thing, Different. every language has different features for generic programming. Some way to like parameterize over something so that you can provide an implementation by some other means. In my experience, people put way too much value in this. You know, like Go was like, I mean, that took them 10 years before they had to do generics, right? And then finally they did it. But like for 10 years, people wrote interesting programs that it. Maybe it's a little bit ugly, maybe they had to do a little some funny things, but at the same time, people were able to write meaningful programs and it got super popular, like really popular without this thing that everybody said they needed. Because in my opinion, if I look at the software that I've written in the past 17 years, it's like, how many times did I really need a generic feature, the generic programming, like actual generic programming feature in said language? And it's so small. I mean, it's great in the places where I need it, but it's like, it's generally not what we're doing. We're generally not doing this thing. And the other problem is that somebody who likes doing that says, and you end up doing all this work, right? What is the meaning of that work? Right? You go and you find the commonality and maybe there were two instances, two instances, right? (laughs) Okay. You've it over two instances. Okay. Okay, maybe there were three. Maybe there were three instances.
0: (laughs) Right. Like
1: it's still not that many, right? It's still not that many, right? And that's the thing that I think people just can't see is like the maintenance value of that. It's very hard. hard. To me, it's like I still can't quantify it. And I would say, I don't think it's worth the abstraction work. Because often the abstraction work is non-trivial, especially if you care about correctness properties and you're going to do all this stuff and you and a lot of time is spent setting this thing up but on the other side if there are not that many places to reuse that thing then to me it's like getters and setters it is not meaningful work
0: yeah that's something that i think is like underrated is talking about the downsides of generic programming in in general like like you know parametric polymorphism like higher kind of types you know etc I think there's also a really big power law effect at work here where like if you're talking about generics in the standard library specifically, which as I understand it, I'm not a Go programmer, but as I understand it, Go has always had that. Like you can always have like a generic like array or something like that. This is something I've heard. So if I'm wrong, I apologize. But (laughs) my understanding is that that's always been the case in Go. And the difference was that you couldn't have user land generics. You didn't have like a way to define your own. And when you're talking about that, That's a really important distinction because, yeah, like you said, I mean, I I think about the generic things that I've written in the past and A, what percentage of the time of like all programming that I've done, was that like a really important thing? And like you said, when you want it, it is really nice. I appreciate having it. But I also remember like doing Java programming before Java, at the time it was called 1.5, like before generics came out in Java. And I remember the main thing that was annoying about it was dealing with standard library collections. It was like, I would always have to like check. I'd be like, okay, this is an object. And then I have to do like a, I don't know if it's called instance over it. That's the JavaScript. And I forget what it's called in Java, but I'd always have to like check in all my loops, you know, whenever I wanted to like do a for loop over a list. And that was really annoying. And then it's like, oh, this is, this is a nice quality of life improvement. But again, if you step outside the standard library, like pretend all your standard library stuff already works that way because it's baked into the language. And you actually sit down and do an honest reckoning of like, how much time have I spent going out of my way to make these things generic just because I can relative to how much specific time and correctness, to be fair, a downside of like, if I have to implement, let's say I'm making a, a custom like tree structure of some sort. And instead of making a generic tree structure, I make like a string tree and I make an int tree and I make a, some other kind of tree, you know, for my my particular use case. And those are the only three that I ever do. One downside is if I make modifications to one, I might make that modification correctly to one and and incorrectly in one of the other two. And I could, I could mess it up and, you know, I need to triple my tests and all that stuff. Fair enough. Like that, again, when they're nice, they're nice. <laughs> but there is also a downside to that, which often just, we often pretend that the downside is zero. That it's like, there's no downside at all to having the option to do that generic stuff. But of course there's a the downside. There's like a downside. If, if you don't know what the downside is, That's just because you haven't thought about it enough. It's not because there isn't one. Everything in programming has a downside (laughs) with with no exceptions. And like, so the idea that, oh, obviously generics are just like a step forward. I think in the case of Go, it's entirely possible that five plus years from now, we see blog posts saying like, you know, I'm not actually sure that adding generics to Go was a good idea because look at all the stuff that people are doing, all the ceremony that people are doing to try and make things generic when they didn't used to do that. They used to just write more straightforward programs. That could happen.
1: Programmers like to be clever. They like to be clever. And when you have powerful features, people get clever. Like the analog would be like, <laughs> Enclosure has macros, right? And when Clojure first came out, it was like, everything was macros, macros here, <laughs> macros there. Hey, you want a macro? Here's five more macros. I mean, it's, it was, that's what it was like for the first couple of years. And then realize, no, it's kind of not that fun. You only need a few. I would say there was like, a, you know, going to the power law, it's like when I started, I was like macros, macros, macros. And, and the more I use the language, like the amount of macros I'm writing is like plummeting, plummeting, like hard. It's like, it's like something I never do. It's like I never do this. But that's something that I think this is the thing. It's like programmers think that X powerful feature is the thing that makes or breaks the thing. My experience is that the most powerful features... The more experience you have in a programming language, the less often you use them.
0: Yeah, that has been a general trend for me. One of the things that makes this topic so tricky is that the value is not zero. It's like the downsides are not zero, but the value is not zero either. I think we often are drawn to like categorizing things as this good, this bad, that's it. There's no middle ground. It's like, no, no, it's like it has pros and it has cons. Like you said, like macros are another good example of something where it's like, When that's what you want, they're really nice. There are some cases like, you know, you shouldn't use them all the time. But like in in those few cases, like, yeah, it's just it is really nice. And I think when it comes to things like generics and macros and like all these things, there's definitely some element of looking at things through a lens of like, should I be using this? Oh, if so, I should just be using it all the time as opposed to looking at it as like, what is the minimal set of circumstances where I should be using this? I'm reminded of like some advice that I saw for game programmers and it was about game engines, which is, again, is like kind of the same thing. It's like if you're going to pull a game engine off the shelf and use it like, okay, cool to like to make your game, whatever. But if you're writing your game from scratch, don't build a game engine first. Just build your game, you know, just cut a direct path to like building. Do the simplest thing that works, that makes your game work. And if you want to make it more generic in the future, you can always do that. But like, don't start with the most generic thing. And the reason that that advice needs to be given is, of course, that that's our inclination as programmers. It's like we see a problem. We're like, what's the most generic solution I can come up with to this problem as opposed to what's the simplest solution I can come up with to this problem? And the longer I've spent in programming, the more I've gravitated towards, let's figure out the simplest solution to this problem, not the most generic.
1: Exactly. And also, I mean, to me, like the the downside, again, with a lot of this stuff, it's like, I mean, that's a great analogy. When people go crazy with the generic programming features of the language, I'm like looking at what they're doing. I'm like, you're building a game engine, not the game. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, You know, and it's really, it's tough. And I would say like, I feel like, I definitely remember being the person that would always want to sit down and write the game engine. I would be like, I'm ready I'm go with all this <laughs> yeah. stuff. And now I just don't have the patience for it. I'd rather just solve like the problem that's been hit, put in front of me. Let's just solve that problem.
0: My analogy for game engines like that I've come up with in my career is forms on websites. I always used to have this urge to be like, I'm going to make a form library and it's probably going to be called simple form or something like that. Like simple or, or like easy <laughs> is going to be in the, in the name, right? And it's going to be so nice and generic and it'll let you make forms. And over the course of the years, I finally realized that the best way to make forms is not to abstract anything. Just write your form. That's it. And the reason for this is that like what I always have discovered is that if you're making a really trivial form, great, it can save you a little bit of time. Guess what? If it's trivial, it's also trivial to write it from scratch. And if it's a complicated form, you're always going to end up running into edge cases such as, oh, these two things, like to get the real user experience you want, these two parts of the form need to interact in some unusual way that the library doesn't, doesn't handle. And if you try to make the library sufficiently flexible to handle really complicated, unusual cases like that. Then it stops being simple. <laughs> it starts being this really complicated thing. And then you end up having to do cartwheels and contortions to try and like make it work with the library. And the only winning move when it comes to form libraries, in my conclusion, is not to play. Just don't do it. Just write your form from scratch. And that's it. And ever since I adopted that, I'm like wow, I just like writing forms more now that I've like shifted my mindset to being like, I don't need to do anything generic. I'm just going to like write the form in the most straightforward way possible and maintain it like that and just live my life. And it's it's just so much easier.
1: <laughs> it's true, but forms are a good example. I mean, for, I like forms because forms are these forms are deceptively simple. If you've ever had to do one, you realize it's really hard. <laughs> and you know, you know, I've, you see these libraries, like I've seen so many freaking libraries that did forms in every language. I was like, this looks like hell. <laughs> like, it's literally there's literally nothing good because it's it's like it's an unsolvable problem.
0: It's like it, well, because they end up needing to essentially be like the equivalent of Turing complete, right? Yes, it's because there's yes. so many edge cases. There's yeah. so
1: many edge cases, constraints between fields, the field. You know, it's just like it's just ridiculous, and you know there is no library that's going to magically cover the thing that you need to do, right? There's no generic thing. This is, this is the thing. Is like people have the abstract problems of web form. That's a real problem, right? It's a real problem that's going to make your company money, right? It's a real problem. And there is no generic solution to this problem. You just sit down and you code it. You're not going to find a thing that does it exactly the way you want. You just do the thing. But the thing is, most programming problems are like forms.
0: Right, exactly. Like forms are a good case study. And like, because it always starts out, you know, you're like, oh, I just need a login form. So username and password. Great. Like that's so simple. It's two fields, submit button. You know, we need to do a little bit of validation. Like, did you actually type something in those? Maybe username can be email. So we want to like offer that validation so we can, you know, without having to hit the server, tell you if you did it wrong. Then it's like, okay, now let's go to the sign up form. It's like, all right, well, it's a little bit simpler, but maybe we have the like, you know, repeat password field. You know, that was like, Really popular, maybe falling out of favor now, whatever. And then you get a little bit further and you're like, okay, now we need like a checkout thing. And we're like, well, all right. So we need like an address. So we need to ask you for it. No problem. But now we need to actually say, well, when you select your country, we need to decide, should we show you a zip code field? Because some countries like don't have that or they have like postal code. Or do we show a state field? Because that's like a dropdown. Like in the US, that's a thing. In other countries, that's not a thing. Or do we disable it or not? And then like, be like okay, well, and then also we need to potentially have like, we have this one edge case where there's this one country that we can't ship to. So we need to like show a, a little banner that pops up if you select that country that says, oh, sorry, you can't. And like, The the edge cases just pile up and up and up and up. And eventually it's like, oh, actually, like at some point you just start fighting the framework and you're just like, this has gone from something that helped me out in the basic case that, you know, I didn't actually need that much help with because it was two fields to something that's like now getting in my way when what I need is something that's essentially Turing complete. Something that's like so powerful that there's no way to make it that powerful and yet still net helpful.
1: It's absolutely true. And it's funny because like, I feel like a form is a classic example of probably a beginner program. who would do it the best way possible, which is only (laughs) to do it directly. And without, without thinking about it that much cases like this, where there's so many constraints and exceptions, right? There's just a lot of exceptions as to what needs to happen defies like generic thinking and it's okay to me. It's okay. But again, like, as you're alluding a lot of solutions when you're interacting, building a product, talking to the product management and like the business requirements are changing. Honestly, most software projects look like forms. It's like very specific. There's lots of strange constraints, very strange requirements. And it's just not something that's, uh, it's not easy to it's abstract not cookie over.
0: cutter. Yeah. It's
1: not <laughs> cookie cutter.
0: Not cookie yeah. Cutter. Very cool. I definitely appreciate this Sort of trend I've seen in, in my own experience of programming, but I also like a lot of people I talk to have this same thing where it's like when you're a beginner, you only know how to do the really straightforward thing, and then you learn how to do the less straightforward thing, and your mind sort of expands and you have all these new options, and then you overuse them. And you know, the middle part of your like learning journey is about getting burned by all the new tools in your toolbox, and then as your journey progresses you end up reacting to that and cutting things out of your toolbox and saying like you know what i know i know how to use this but like i'm going to use this rarely if ever and by the end you end up looking more like the beginner but because you're sort of like older and wiser and have learned these new techniques it's like there are these things that you reach for that the beginner would have no idea what they do but you reach for them sparingly you're like only under very specific circumstances will I know to go grab this thing. And to be fair, I don't know how without that middle part of the journey, you can know which ones to reach for and under what circumstances. It's not like I, I that's a bad path necessarily, but I do think it's important to have that realization to be like, oh, it is possible to overuse these things. It is possible to go too far. And like the threshold for how much you should be using them in a lot of cases is like, way lower than what's like considered common practice by maybe the industry at large.
1: We're on the same page. Same page. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Man, this has been really fun. Yeah, thanks so much for joining me. Anything else we should talk about before we wrap up?
1: I don't think so. Yeah, no, it's been fun. You know, I haven't been, you know, I've only been giving like a you know, used to do a lot of talks and go a lot of conferences. I did get to do a fun one recently. I don't know if you've ever got to mess
0: with uh, property based testing very much. Oh, yeah. I built it into Elm test. So it's it's actually like oh, a cool. first class thing that ships with Elm test. Yeah. That's yeah, awesome.
1: So that's definitely a thing where it's like, I'm sure no Reddit's the same way. Like, I mean, at Fouch, I mean, we have, there's just so much work around software maintenance. Like, it's crazy. Like, the amount of time we're spending just on maintaining the software. You know, I had this realization, it's my new realization, is that like software maintenance actually is this area that's ripe for like actual radical thinking, right? It's like the place where it's the safest to apply radical ideas is like testing because it's not, you're not shipping it.
0: Right. right? You're, not shipping, great point. you're not
1: shipping your testing. Right. right. Yeah. So this is the place where like, actually you're allowed to think fast or move fast and break stuff. Cause these are tests, right? You don't want to break the test, but I mean like you're able <laughs> right. to, you're able to apply more radical sort of approaches to the software that maybe the production system doesn't make sense for the production system. So that's been kind of fun, actually. At Vouch, we like, we doubled down actually on uh, property based testing and generative testing because it's it's like a way for us to actually, it's really been fun for what we're doing to simulate something. We have a thing where we have like, multiple actors like we have multiple like users and we actually did a whole thing where we represent the entire state of the world in one value everything like every user so we are in the digital key space like vehicles and phones and you can use your phone to operate your car or a dealer can sell a car but we actually have everything in one the entire world the entire world is in one data structure As an L programmer, that's very familiar to me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But but so all all our tests are written in this thing that like it doesn't matter what the arguments are, the first argument's the world and then returns the world and you just thread it through. Doing it that way, we actually used property-based testing to say, okay, you've created a base scenario and then automatically generates the events based off of what users and what vehicles there are inside that little world state. And then at the end, we, we calculate this cryptographic value and it has to be the same. And not only has to be the same, it has to be the same forever because we are actually on the blockchain. So, like, Whoa. once our backend produces a particular cryptographic value, it can never change. We're in a state where people talk about backwards compatibility and they're just like, they're not serious. Like, we're <laughs> like so serious. We actually have a thing that says this file that we generated of events. It produces this value and it doesn't, even, even if there was a bug, like that version of the software can never go away. The version that includes
0: the bug. Is the reason for this like, so that if I buy a car and I like set it up with this system that I don't have to worry about, well, what if Vouch goes out of business? Does my stuff stop working or is it something else? No,
1: it's, it's a little bit more annoying than that. <laughs> Without getting too much into the blockchain thing. So what happens is we send... A transaction, like a quote unquote, just a payload that says, do this, do something, run this thing, right? And that for each one, for each value that we give to the blockchain, the blockchain produces a cryptographic hash, referring like this is now the this hash value is the state of the world. But really, if you think about it, it's like git, right? You've committed something, and then git is a function that produces this is the commit, right? So if you apply all the commits, you're always gonna get the same sha right so the blockchain is basically saying for each thing i give you a new hash so the blockchain itself is a pure function right but the thing is is we can't change the behavior the historical behavior of the function because how it works is that we actually have three nodes all computing taking the transaction and computing the new hash value all nodes have to agree that the hash value is the same so if you change code in one of the things, imagine you didn't change code in, in the three nodes that are running, but you change the source code, then you boot up a server. That server has to replay the transactions that the other node saw, but you added new code that alters the value. Now that node can never participate in the network. Okay, so this is about coordination. It's about coordination, but... The fact is, is that there's a hard requirement that every node always has to produce the same history, the same historical values, which means that in our code base, we have to be able to produce all historical behavior. Right. But that's like, but if you think about it, that's like a hardcore not,
0: requirement. Exactly.
1: <laughs> that's not normally a thing that you have to do in software. So that, so th- I mean, this I know it's like this is going a little bit long, but that's actually where property-based Testing like for us was like it's like magic because we can generate we can make a model of our system, we can say, given this world, produce a set of commands, and we should always arrive at this particular this particular value always always
0: no matter how much you refactor your implementation of this function, you have a way to check like no matter what inputs you give it, it definitely is going to give me the same outputs as before for this set of commands that were supported at the time.
1: That's right. And there's another cool thing, which is that internally we have to use feature flags, like everybody has used feature flags. You want to do a new feature. But what's really interesting about our thing, about the way that the blockchain works, is that we have to have a transaction that says, turn the feature on. Because every node has to upgrade their computation oh, together. Right. So we have a way to migrate. But that, my, the migration is itself a transaction and everybody upgrades to the new computation at the same time.
0: Very cool. Yeah, I, I can see how uh, property-based testing would help a lot with that. It's totally awesome. We actually do this thing.
1: We have, we have generative tests that actually interleaved with people like operating vehicles, selling cars. We actually have a thing that turns a feature on and off. And then what we do is at the end of that run, we actually replay not like the symbolic command generator, we we produce these commands. We actually take the binary encoded transactions that were computed and we just play those back and say, do we end up in the same place? Nice. Wow, very cool stuff. Well, it's fun because this was definitely like, I've been doing like functional programming for like 10 years and I go to all these talks like property-based testing, Sticking all your stuff into one value and like this, this ha- we did this work like six or seven. We started doing this like six or seven months ago and this was definitely like, yes, this is what I was waiting for. Like <laughs> making it testing, like not five times better. Like this is like a hundred times better than any previous <laughs> testing thing that I've ever done. Like it was legitimately that much better. And what was really cool about it I gave a talk on this in Krakow at Lambda Days. That's where that we were supposed to meet earlier. And what was really cool about it was that my whole, the whole, my whole talk was like, we implement this thing. We never got past textbook functional programming, right? So like when you do an M tutorial, it's like, put all your stuff into one value, right? right. It's like the text. It's like a textbook. Every, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> everybody shows that. And you're like, that's weird. Why would you, you know, like, does that really scale? so that's how our testing framework works is that we just stick everything into one value. And then what was really fun was the property-based testing thing that we approached that we took. You have to have time to learn a little bit about property-based testing. But what was really fun was that I did this version and then we had one of our developers who had never done generative testing or property-based testing ever before. And in about two weeks, I think it took about two, three weeks, he wrote the first new comp- like generative suite based off the previous work. So that's, yeah. So that's another thing I think is really cool. It's like, you know, I definitely feel like back to your thing of like evangelizing functional programming. It's like, you know, a lot of times people are always like, you know, I always say, if you're interested, I think one thing is really cool is that like, don't think it's that hard to learn, especially on the job. This is the story you've always said about no red red ink. It seems crazy. It seems weird, but you get there and you start doing it. And, you know, it's like, a completely different world. And I would say you'll never go back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I certainly haven't. Oh. Awesome. Wow. David, thank you so much for joining me. This is this is a great conversation. And yeah, it's it's always awesome to, to talk to you. So thanks a lot. Yeah, of course. And let's talk again soon. Absolutely.